0: Amen. Amen. Well, it's been awesome for me getting to uh, see pictures and videos and updates coming in from the team. And just thank you, Center Church, for being a church that sends and blesses and resources and expands ministry. And so I cannot wait till that team comes back and we get to hear more of what God is doing out in Kenya at Kajani Farm. I cannot wait to hear our team share what God did in and through them. Um, and you will be getting more updates in the weeks to come. But just thank you for being a church that sends and blesses and sustains ministry. It, it is awesome to see. And I cannot wait to see what God does more in the years to come. All right, so I am blessed to be married to my high school sweetheart, Kara. And uh, this picture is very precious to me because uh, I, this picture is us at one of, our, one of the high school dances. I don't remember if it's junior year or uh, my senior year, um, but this is us as high schoolers going to um, homecoming together. And uh, this picture always brings me back to those early years of our relationship as I was just falling head over heels for Kara Maguire, and, and I remember that season as my heart was just drawn towards her in too many ways to list and how I longed to be with her. And this, marriage, or this, this picture reminds me of a greater reality. Uh, th- this picture reminds me of the storyline of our relationship that became dating and then engagement and then marriage. You see, this picture is very precious to me. Uh, Even though this picture probably cost, I don't know, 17 cents to print off at Walgreens 20 plus years ago, uh, it is precious to me. Uh, If you walked up and offered me $100 for this picture, I wouldn't give it to you because it is a reminder of the bigger story of our relationship. And that's why I have this picture, many others like it as bookmarks in the different books that I read to remind me of my love for and my devotion to my wife and the bigger story. You see, it's just a picture printed on a piece of photo paper from Walgreens. But the significance of this to me is that it reminds me of a greater reality. This little piece of photo paper reminds me of my bride and the story of our marriage. And see, so that's the beauty of pictures. That, that's the significance of pictures. And I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to guess that there's some pictures in your life, at your house, at work, in your car, somewhere, some pictures that are precious and beloved to you, because not because of the paper they're printed on, but because of the story that that picture reminds you of. And now that's the beauty and the joy of pictures because they remind us of a greater reality a loved one a house that became a home a memory a season of life that picture shows you something beyond that picture and the significance of what we're going to look at today in Ephesians chapter 5 is this idea that picture that marriage is more than just a marriage What we're going to be told today is that marriage is a living picture, so to speak, of a far greater reality. What we're going to see is the significance that a marriage, when it's done right in a God-honoring way, a marriage can serve as a living picture of a greater reality, namely Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Where am I getting this idea from? In Ephesians 5, Paul, uh, towards the end of the chapter, is talking about how a man is to leave his mother and father, leave his household, and hold fast to his wife, and the two, fle- the two will become one flesh. And Paul is using Genesis to describe marriage, and as Paul is saying, the two shall become one flesh, he then says this, seemingly out of nowhere, in Ephesians 5, verse 32. Paul says... This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So remember, he was just talking about the two becoming one, a man holding fast to his wife, fidelity in marriage, and then Paul says, it's a mystery, granted, but I am saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. Wow. Wow. Consider the significance of what he just argued. In a sense, though it is imperfect, though it is hazy, though it is broken by sin, still, in some way, a marriage is designed by God, hopefully, to showcase the storyline of Jesus Christ and the church And that is how I want to reframe marriage for us today. That that is the bigger, deeper, better reality that I want to call us to as a church from Ephesians 5. So with that in mind, please grab your Bible and open it up to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, We're going to walk through verses 18 to 33. Now, in most Bibles, uh, the section... That begins talking about the household together, it begins talking about marriage and then leading into children and what that household is supposed to look like. For most Bibles, it begins really in verse 22. Uh, if you look at the Bible you have, uh, look on down, and just like my Bible, your Bible probably has a break between verse 21 and verse 22. Uh, there, there's a paragraph break there, and in my Bible, there's a header. That right before verse 22 just says wives and husbands. Now, I hope this doesn't pop any bubbles for you, but uh, chapter numbers and verse numbers and headers for different sections, those aren't original. Those weren't in the original text of the Bible. They're put in there by Bible translators to help you know um, what's coming. But there's really an artificial break between verse 21 and verse 22. And uh, what we need to remember is that what begins in verse 22 doesn't just begin out of nowhere, but what begins in verse 22 is flowing out of what was said, verses 21 and earlier. And really, it's flowing out of chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and Ephesians chapter 4, and Ephesians chapters 3, 2, and 1, but don't worry, I'm not going to read all of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. But you need to remember, everything we're going to read today is flowing out of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 up to today. And so just to make a point, I am going to start at verse 18, and you will see why. But I've just got to name the elephant in the room really quick before we jump into the passage itself, that as we read a passage on marriage, and as I unpack that and its implications for us today— uh, I need to acknowledge the fact that oftentimes in a mixed environment like this, uh, in a church family like ours that has um, marrieds and singles and widows and divorced and those who want to get married and those who don't want to get married, it's a challenging dynamic oftentimes for us to think through these things in a healthy way. And I just need to acknowledge that, sadly, for many singles, I have been told repeatedly that when the topic of marriage comes up or a sermon like this is explored, oftentimes for some singles, they feel like they're on the outside looking in, not just from that sermon, but from the life of the church as a whole. And what I need to say up front is to all of our singles, whatever season of life, for whatever reason you are single, I need you to know, this church is for you but also this sermon is for you. And here's why. Because ultimately, this is a reminder for all of us, not just the singles. I'm I'm saying this to everybody. But to our singles, please hear me. If you are single and you want to get married, if you are single and you feel called to remain single and you're not desiring marriage, if you are widowed, if you are divorced and the marriage ended in a way that you didn't want, If you are grieving over the way the marriage ended, for whatever reason, whatever condition of singleness you are in, I need you to hear me. This church is for you, and we, as a church family, love you, welcome you, and we need you also. We, We want you to hear that you're not just like, welcome to the table and fine, we'll let you join in. Like, this church family needs you, And every single season of life, every single situation, what this church is trying to do is to lead us to live lives with Jesus at the center of it all. And and the fact is that all of us need to remember this. And this should not even need to be said, but sadly, I need to say it. The, The fact is that the married people of the church, they're not like the senior level varsity squad. And then the singles of the church are like the JV squad that can just kind of tag along. Quick reminder that the greatest human life ever lived was lived by a single man who died in his early 30s, never being married. And Jesus showed us the truly good life is not defined by economic status. He was poor and actually homeless, The truly good life is not defined by relationship status, not married, betrayed by his closest friends, not supported, a victim of injustice. Jesus shows us the truly good life is experienced by knowing the love of God the Father and then pouring out your life in love to others, whatever condition you have. So I shouldn't even have to say this, but the American church has mishandled the singles. Not only are you welcomed, but you're needed. You are a valued, dignified member of this church. And this sermon is for you, yes, but this church is for you and needs you. Can I please get an amen? So once again, a lot of different situations of why people are single. If you're single and desiring marriage, may this sermon over the next two weeks help reframe it for you and show you how to pursue and value and construct a marriage. If you're single and not desiring marriage because you feel called to singleness, awesome. Quick reminder, the apostle Paul was single and he helped married people learn how to live for Jesus. We need you to edify this church family together. If you are widowed, if you are divorced, if you are grieving, whatever season of life, lean into the community of this church and let us love you and learn from you and learn to center our lives on Jesus together. All right, so traditionally for most Bibles, um, the, what's called a household code about how to do marriage and how to do family life and how to do parenting, the, the household code begins at verse 22. That's an artificial break in the flow of thought from Paul. Everything he's writing has been one continuing thought, So just to annoy you and make a point, I'm not going to start at verse 22. We're going to start at Ephesians 1, verse 1. I'm kidding. Ephesians 5, verse 18, to get us the context of Paul's thought, all right? Ephesians 5, verse 18. What life together under the good lordship of Jesus should look like is this, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Paul is saying, don't let your life be controlled by your appetites. Don't lose your mental faculties and self-control to a substance of any kind, but instead be filled with the Spirit of God and let your life be directed by Him, not in bondage to any controlling substance. Continues on. Verse 19, how should we be speaking to one another in the church? Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Isn't that beautiful that Paul is saying the nature of our conversation, the the tone of the way we speak to one another and the life of the church should be celebratory of God, thanking God, edifying one another, encouraging one another with songs of God's goodness in our lives and one another. Now, just to be clear, this is not saying that you can only greet one another with songs This is not saying in the church lobby after service today, you have to sing to one another unless you really want to be an overachiever, go for it. This is the idea of thanksgiving and praise should be the note of our language, not debauchery and selfishness and everything else. Verse 20, Paul continues, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, How do we now relate to one another in the church? Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that beautiful that as Paul is describing what life lived together, trying to follow Jesus together It should be characterized by a mutual deference and submission to one another. A desire to see the other person flourish. A willingness to lay down our preferences for the well-being of another. That life together in the church should not feel like the rat race that we see going on in the world jockeying for position. That life together in the church should not feel anything like What you see at a roller derby, which if you've seen video of that, you see people going around a loop and they're going in the same direction, but they'll elbow and deck one another to get a better position. That's not what life in the church should feel like, but it should be like, I'll lay down my preferences for your well-being. There is an others-oriented worldview to the life with Jesus. So now with that in mind, with the you first. What do you need? How can I serve? How can I bless you? With that idea in mind, in verse 21, now Paul shifts to verse 22, as he reframes for the Greco-Roman world, and then us today, how marriage should function according to God's design. Ephesians 5, verse 22, Paul continues. Wives, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so here in this text, we see The biblical teaching summarized of God's design for marriage of a one flesh union of one husband and one wife coming together and laying down their preferences to build a life together that becomes two becoming one flesh. And I've just got to acknowledge right up front how countercultural this narrative of this text still is today. Um, A little bit this week, but really next week, I'm going to get into how divisive and explosive and controversial this text was in Paul's context, actually primarily for the men and not for the women. I'll get to that more. But I've even got to acknowledge today that this is a loaded, uh, tense passage for us to consider. And the, the challenge is, whenever this passage is read right away, the explosive divisive, difficult, what about this? And what did he just say? And what does that mean? And what about this situation? And we begin running into all of these different variables. And, and we want to zero in on what did Paul say in verse 23? That the husband is the head of the wife? What? What on earth is that passage talking about? When it says, wives, submit to your own husbands? Lord, have mercy. Is this a call to go back to the 1950s? where it's just, wives, just do whatever the husband wants. What what does this actually mean? And we want to understandably zip to the specifics because admittedly, there are so many terrible, foolish, evil demonstrations of how this passage has been twisted and abused. And the challenge is there's beauty here that normally has been manifested in an unhealthy way in many situations. And so the challenge is that we want to jump right to the specifics. Well, what about that word? And what does that mean? And what does this apply? And how does that work out? When in reality, if we jump to deep exegesis and application, and well, this is what submission means right away. If we jump to that and fail to zoom out to see the bigger beauty of God's design for marriage, the application will fall flat on its face. And this passage especially, it is so easy to miss the beauty of the forest by just focusing in on one tree. By just hyper-focusing on one individual tree, we miss the bigger storyline of the forest line that God is setting up before us. And so what I need to acknowledge is, I cannot say everything that needs to be said today, and I cannot address everything you probably want to hear today. Uh, This is going to be a two-week sermon. Uh, I'm going to be in the same passage for two weeks. Today, bigger picture. Next week, more granular. Today, we're looking at God's design. Next week, we'll be looking more at how it works out in practicality. And what we need to remember— is that though it is a mystery, Paul says in Ephesians 5, it, being marriage, refers to Christ and the church. What I'm doing today is just to remind us as a church family, quote unquote, our marriages aren't really ours. We don't possess them like we possess something at our house Every single marriage is a gift from God to steward. And our marriages aren't really about us. Our marriages can bless us and nurture us and serve us, but our marriages are about a far bigger story than our desires being met. Our marriages are about Jesus first and foremost. And if if you get that backwards, if you follow the storyline of American culture, if you think me, myself, and I... You'll enter into marriage and you'll relate in marriage and you'll fight in marriage in a distorted way. But if you step back and realize marriage isn't really about me, it refers to Christ and the church. If you learn to lay down your preferences, if you learn to say not me at the center, but Jesus at the center. If you submit your life to the greater story of bringing honor to God, marriage can become a beautiful thing. But if I jump to application, Before the big picture truths, it will not work. So before you ask, what does this mean for my marriage? Let's step back and go, what does God say about marriage? Before you say, how does this work out? Say, what did God design it to do? Before we get to how, let's talk about the why. Jesus, we want to show people how wonderful and excellent and great and glorious you are. God, thank you for the gift of marriage But in this Genesis 3 sin-fractured world, it so often is not what you designed it to be. And God, this is a mixed room. There's joy and there's sorrow. There's hope and there's despair. There's regret and there's confidence. And I ask you to be present, Holy Spirit. I ask you to take my meager words and my weak abilities and may you go far beyond what is said by me And may you speak truth and grace and hope and joy. And may you speak the gospel to our hearts beyond what I say in my sermon. We surrender this to you. Not just this day, but our lives. Not just our lives, but our families and our households in this church. Come, Lord Jesus, and make our lives and our marriages and our singleness about you. In your name, amen. So the fact of the matter is that we are all story-shaped creatures. We we all live out the story that we subconsciously believe. That's why, uh, generally speaking, marketing campaigns that are successful don't just tell you to buy something, they tell you a story. They tell you, buy this and you'll become this kind of person. Have this, these types of people will hang out with you. Get this in your life, and you'll have this kind of a life. We are all story-shaped creatures. And the ways that we experience life growing up, the ways we receive love and give love and are shaped by love trains us to give and receive love as we age and grow up. And the story that we are told through words and deeds, the stories that we subconsciously believe direct our lives even when we're not aware of it. And the storyline of American culture is you are at the center of it all. The storyline of American culture is get more, buy more, have more, experience more, get what you want, and then you'll be happy. Now, very rarely will people actually say that out loud, but let's admit it, that's what we believe subconsciously. And oftentimes we bring that narrative, me, myself, and I into marriage, even as Christians. And we wonder why things feel dysfunctional because we try to make marriage about personal fulfillment when God did not primarily design it to do that. God primarily designed marriage to showcase Jesus Christ. And the storyline we believe is the storyline that we will follow. And the fascinating thing that I just hinted at earlier on is that this text was actually mainly divisive and confrontational and offensive to the men of Paul's day, not to the women. That this would have been confrontational more so for the men in the congregation than for the women. Um, Every once in a while, a pastor will get an angry email on a Monday. I've never gotten one of those before, but I've heard that pastors sometimes get that email on Monday. I guarantee you, Paul got some angry emails, first century equivalents, on Monday after this was read. This was explosively countercultural to the Greco Roman narrative of what men were supposed to get. I'll unpack that much more in depth next week and how countercultural this was. But really, the interesting thing is that most of the exhortations and most of the commands in this passage are at the man, not at the wife. Though the weight of this passage, the momentum of this passage, the, the biggest word count is to the husband, not to the wife. And it really, what marriage is being shown here is that husband, your job is to show what Jesus is like through the way you husband. Where am I getting that from? Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul says this Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice that verses 26 and 27, it's headed towards this idea of the groom helping the bride become all that she can be, to be made whole, to flourish, to be freed into what God has called her to be. We'll get into that more next week. But notice the paradigm that Paul gives for the husband in marriage is the life and death of Jesus. When Paul says, husbands, do you wanna know what your job in marriage is? Do you wanna know the trajectory for the way your life should be headed? Here's where you should be going. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved in the same way as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Next week, I will show how explosively countercultural that command was to the Greco-Roman narrative of their day. But right away, what we need to recognize is that the primary weight of this passage is on the responsibility of the husband, to learn to lay down his life and sacrifice his preferences and yes, even his well-being for the long-term flourishing of his wife. That is his calling card. That is his job description. That is the design of marriage for a husband to live in such a way that the love of Jesus is shown and, and displayed through his life. Now, right away, many people, their minds go to verse 23. What on earth Does it mean when it says the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, excuse me, that's not for today is what many people think. And I will unpack that much more in depth next week about what it means for the husband to be the head, but it's not what many of us think it is in our culture. Uh, Just a quick hint, I'll unpack more next week. To say the husband is the head does not mean that the husband is the CEO, president, and chairman of the board of the home. That This is not the husband's the boss and she's kind of like the intern. That ain't what this is at all. What the paradigm is for the husband is your call is to lay down your life in a self-sacrificial way so your wife can flourish and become all that God has called Her to be. And so I just want to challenge the men today to prepare your heart to fast and pray this week, to seek God in preparation for next Sunday as we look at this much more in depth. Men, you are not called to a you centered life. Marriage is not your possession like you possess your car. When I say men, your marriage, I'm not saying you're like possessive, like you own it. I'm saying your marriage, where you reside, where you are blessed to be. Gentlemen, your wife is not there for you. Your wife is a gift from God. Your marriage is a gift from God to steward so that you can become the kind of man who lays down his life in such a way that reminds people of the greater story of Jesus Christ and his love. So guys, be praying this week. Ask the Spirit of God to convict you and to well up within your heart hidden sins and unseen patterns and ways you live and speak and interact with your wife that's dishonoring to her, yes, but dishonoring to Jesus even more so. Men, what story is your marriage telling? What storyline are you following? The me-centered storyline of our culture or the storyline of Jesus Christ's self-sacrificial love? Guys, think about the opportunity that we have to live a life of significance. Guys, think about the invitation we have to be conformed into the image of Christ in the gift and the blessing and yes, at times the crucible of marriage. You see, the the interesting thing is, so often, this is true for everyone, but oftentimes, especially for us guys, we pray, God, make me like Jesus. God, teach me to love like Jesus. And we somehow think it's like downloading an app on our phone that we just ask for it and God downloads it to our heart and soul. When in reality, as we pray, God, teach me to love like Jesus. Oftentimes, the very environment in which he's trying to teach us to self-sacrificially love like Jesus is in our marriage. And too often, our selfishness and our immaturity and our pettiness, we run from the very answer to prayer God is offering us. And we want to love like Jesus, and we grow bitter with our wife when things aren't easy. We want to love like Jesus, but we refuse to lay down our preferences for her well-being. And all the while, God is going, I'm trying to answer your prayer. Would you lean in to the gift of marriage? Man, I challenge you to seek the Lord in prayer this week, but may you be encouraged. No matter how hard it is right now, no matter how difficult it is right now, God is can sustain and heal and work in your marriage. And though you may not feel the capacity to do it, God, His grace and His strength is made perfect in your weakness. May you not run from, may you not grow apathetic, may you not grow passive, but may you lean into God's design for marriage and pour out your life or her well being and say, Jesus, tell a better story through my life and through my marriage. So that is the call to men that we will look at much more in depth next week. But what does this text say to the women? What is the call for how God has designed marriage as well for wives? What does it say? Jump back to verse 22 with me. Ephesians 5 verse 22 says, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, "'for the husband is the head of the wife, "'even as Christ is the head of the church, his body.'" And is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, consider the fact that what I just read so grates against our cultural sensibilities, it is so uncomfortable and offensive to many. It is so difficult for even many in our church family to even hear this because of negative experiences, unhealthy and toxic expressions of this passage, and broken experiences that we've seen in the lives of our friends, in our home growing up, or even in our present life. And we hear this passage and go, excuse me, how on earth can that be said to a wife? And the challenge is, once again, I cannot say all that needs to be said. I will unpack this more in depth next week. But right away, our minds go to, generally speaking, all of the negatives of what submission might be and our fears, rather than jumping to the idea of what the Bible defines submission as. And so what is submission and what is submission not? In a couple of weeks, we're going to have an interview with Don Mack and Gayla Brinian as they talk through the biblical idea of what submission is and what it is not and what God has taught them in marriage. And you'll hear more of that from a woman's perspective on the ReCenter podcast that we'll talk more about soon. But what I need to do first off is just to clarify upfront what submission is not. We'll explore it more next week, what it is. But sadly, because of toxicity and sin and abuse and brokenness, and an unhealthy expression of this actually beautiful idea, very often people can't hear what it's saying because they're only thinking about a distorted picture. So please just hear from me some quick clarifiers of what submission is not and what this is not talking about up on the screen. Submission does not mean an inferior status in terms of someone's value or dignity at all. Submission does not mean becoming a passive doormat and you're just walked over and you just leave your will at the door, leave your brain at the door and you're just walked over, not at all. Submission does not mean the loss of personhood or the loss of personal agency and the the ability to make decisions and express your needs and to draw boundaries, not at all. Does submission mean the loss of personhood or agency? Submission does not mean following someone else into sin, It does not mean just submitting and going along with the the flow and following someone into sin, not at all. And submission does not mean subjecting yourself to abuse ever, submitting to an abusive environment or situation at all. And see, this is what is needed to be said because sadly, so often those distorted representations is what many wives have tragically experienced by sinful childish little men. And so that is what submission is not. We'll get to that more next week. But really quick, I want you to notice something of the way I worded all of those clarifying statements up on the screen. Look at it really quick. Please notice that there's nothing up there specifically about wives and husbands. Notice there's nothing feminine or masculine in any of the grammatical structure at all. I never say anything about wives up there Everything up there is a true clarifier for all Christians in all situations. That idea needs to be stated because Christians are called to submit in a variety of situations. Submission is called of Christ followers, oh, I don't know, all the way back in Ephesians 5 verse 21. And what we need to remember is that submission is not those things, applies to us as we submit to church authority, as we submit in work situations, as we submit to one another, men and women, those clarifiers apply to all of us as we all learn to submit in different environments, men and women. That's what we need to remember. But then also, especially so in the context of marriage, Those are the ideas for wives to know they should never submit themselves to abuse in any capacity. If you are in danger at all, you should not remain in that situation and you should notify the authorities. If you are being manipulated, you should not be quiet. If you are being mistreated, you should tell others. Submission never should lead to that. We'll get into that more next week. As Dawn and Gayle will walk through what submission is and what submission is not, I hope and pray that it will be a life-giving invitation to the women of our church and to the men. So stepping back from the individual trees of the husband and the wife, let's step back. Let's remind ourselves big picture what this passage is about. Let's remember the forest, not just the trees. What is this passage arguing this passage is reminding us it is a mystery, but it, marriage, two, becoming one flesh, it refers to Christ and the church. What a sacred privilege we have in marriage to learn to relate to one another in such a way that though it be faint, a picture, a living picture of Jesus can be seen through our lives. You see, the reason why Paul repeatedly, like not just verse 32, but as you look at it, throughout this passage, Paul keeps tying the husband-wife relationship to the Christ and church relationship. The reason why he is doing that is to say, your marriage isn't really your marriage. Your marriage is a gift to steward. Your marriage is a blank canvas on which God can paint a breathtakingly beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. Oh my goodness, what a gift we have. And yet so often we get lost in the difficulty and the sorrows and the regrets and the offenses of marriage. And we think more about ourselves than about the honor of Jesus Christ. Friend, don't just think about your marriage and specific application. Lift your eyes to see, no matter how hard it is right now, no matter how many regrets you have, no matter where your marriage is at, no matter where your singleness is at, your life can be about Jesus and show who Jesus is. Once again, to our beloved singles in this church family. For those who want to be married, let Ephesians 5 be your paradigm for understanding it. It's not about personal fulfillment primarily. You will get that. You are blessed in marriage, absolutely, but your marriage should be about the paradigm of Jesus Christ being known. Let that guide your decisions as you consider or pursue marriage. For our singles who feel called to singleness or no desire for singleness, once again, like I said earlier, Quick reminder that the Apostle Paul who wrote this was single and he helped married people learn to center their lives on Jesus. You're not just welcomed at this church, you're needed at this church. We need you. Lean in and don't be separate from community life. For those who are single against their will, for those who are grieving for whatever reasons for why they are widowed or divorced, I encourage you to lean into this church family and process through your story with others here. You're not alone. You are beloved and welcome. Open up about what you're going through. But the reminder for us is that your marriage is following a narrative. Your marriage is following a storyline. Either the storyline of me, myself, and I, as our culture tells, or the storyline of Jesus Christ's greatness and beauty and self-giving love. Your marriage is not just following a storyline. Your marriage is telling a story. What story is your marriage telling? So we'll get into much more details next week of the application and what this means. But today, I just wanted to remind us of what the purpose of marriage is. I wanted to zoom out and give us a chance to get our hearts right before God To say, God, I need you. God, I surrender. God, I repent. God, I want you. God, would you move? God, I surrender. Whatever you need, let today be that reorientation of your life towards him. So we're going to step into a time of reflection, and you'll see some questions up on the screen. And hopefully not just for these couple of minutes, but for this week and beyond. What I want to ask you to reflect on is, what storyline is your marriage following? the storyline of the world or the storyline of the gospel of Jesus Christ laying down his life to save us and bless us? Is your marriage about me, myself, and I or is your marriage about serving and blessing the other for the sake of Jesus being known? Friend, whatever condition, whatever season your marriage is in, know this, that your marriage is an invitation to draw nearer to Christ and to be conformed to the character of Christ? Is your marriage struggling right now? Let that be an invitation to depend on God like never before and learn to love the other as you struggle. Is your marriage joyful right now? Would you bring honor to God by thanking him for that gift and loving the creator more than that created thing? and using your joy-filled season of marriage to bless others? Is your marriage in a season where it's hard to forgive and you don't know how to get past what was done or what is happening? Let that be an invitation into the Lord's Prayer where you will say, Lord, help me to forgive others as you have forgiven me. Let the difficulties of your marriage drive you to depend on God like never before. Is your marriage stable and a place of rest and delight? Praise God for that. And may you lean into your marriage in a way that refreshes you so you can get back in the game and lay down your life and serve and bless others in the world and beyond. See, friends, this isn't like some cheesy pep talk, five steps to a better marriage in a month. Wherever you're at, joyful or grieving, may you surrender and lean in to the far better story of Jesus being known and glorified through your life. So take a few minutes at your seat and reflect right now and say, Jesus, I surrender my singleness, my marriage, my widowhood. I surrender it to you. Show your glory through my life. Do your business at your seat right now for a few minutes and then I'll transition us after that.